it is time to welcome you to another edition of Product Chat, Pragmatic Institute's webinar and podcast series where we tackle the biggest challenges facing today's product teams. I'm Eddie Gordon, courseware designer at Pragmatic Institute and today's host. The next one that's coming up is going to be Tuesday, November 18th, 1 p.m. Eastern Time. We'll be joined then by Ted Best, SVP of Product Management at OfferPad for a conversation on how market visits can elevate your product roadmaps. Join us for that one on November 18th. It is time to introduce our guest lecturer for the day. Our guest has been in product for well over a decade, working in everything from early stage startups to large companies in B2B, SaaS, and B2C. Most recently, she's led marketplace product teams for Expedia slash Verbo, uh, TaskRabbit, and has a passion for building trust within her market to retain customer loyalty. Please welcome Lindsay Hunt. Lindsay, how are you? It is so good to have you here today. Hi, thanks for having me. Are you uh, ready to make us all smarter on the topic of how to retain customers, build loyalty, and increase revenue opportunities. Goodness me, that is the holy grail right that. If we can come away doing all those things, three things today, we are going to be in top form. I'm ready. Yeah, I'll do my best uh, to share some, right. some examples and some, some ways that we think about it within our, our marketplace. All right. Um, so thanks for the intro. Let me go ahead and get started with just a little bit of a probing question. So we're talking today about how do we retain customers and um, how do we keep them coming back to our product over and over? Um, so I kind of went through this thought exercise myself, like what keeps me as a loyal uh, a customer to some of the companies that I use? So these are, these are specific to me, but you can um, think about some of your own examples um, of why I use them. Um, Amazon, um, we all, a lot of us use this. Uh, for me, it's about convenience. Uh, when something goes wrong, good customer service. And of course, um, speed of speed of delivery, how quickly I can have something sent to my house. That those are the things that keep me coming back um, over and over to Amazon. Even when I may pay a little bit more for for some of this, it keeps me coming. Uh, what else uh, do I use regularly? A few others: Apple, um, quality products, trusted brand. For me personally, my brother works there, so I get some discounts. So that's also keeps me coming back. That those are the things that keep me coming back to to that type of a brand. Spotify. You know, fair prices definitely feels like I'm not having to spend, you know, money like you did in the old days on on a whole album, but uh, paying a monthly price to have unlimited music. And also something that's, you know, fairly um, good there is, you know, you get your you get your um, playlists all organized and there's a high switching cost to switching that to an, to another service, right, um, to an Apple Music or an Amazon uh, prime music. So those are some things that um, keep, keep me as a loyal user of Spotify. Um, what else? I, I'm not much of a TikTok user, but you know, there's there's the whole like image, social proof, entertainment, where my friends are um, is, is a thing with a lot of social media platforms um, that keep people coming back. Uh, what else do I use all the time? United. Well, in this case, it may be less um, that they're providing um, a lot of benefits to me and more just that I may not have a choice, right? I'm I'm in a particular location and I only have certain airlines that fly to where I'm wanting to go. 
Um, another thing that may keep me coming back is loyalty programs, like frequent flyers, trying to accumulate those within a particular airline, but um, maybe not as much of a brand that people get excited about as some of the ones above. Um, another example in that might be, um, you know, your internet provider, you know, Comcast, not to pick on Comcast if anyone works there, but often is highlighted as a company that, you know, doesn't have customer service that people love. But in this case, it's like you may not have very many options, right? Um, you need internet. You, you have only a provider that services your home, maybe two. Um, so we're loyal customers, but it may be for different reasons than we are for, for companies that we're actively choosing to, to spend time with or spend money with. So just uh, an idea to kind of be thinking about, like, what are the reasons that people are coming back to your product? Um, what, are, what are the reasons we're giving them? And what are the ways that we're, today we're going to explore some of the things that we can do to keep them coming back? So with that, let me kind of get into to this question, which we'll be talking about, you know, why do we create how do we create product experiences that build loyalty and trust? If we're building loyalty and trust, we're increasing our ability to retain customers and increasing our revenue for our, for our businesses. So today, as we examine this question, we're going to look at it under a couple different areas. So we're gonna focus on price and how price has an impact on loyalty, um, how we can use pricing tactics or think about price as it relates to bringing customers back into our business. I'm going to talk about some feedback loops, growth feedback loops, customer feedback loops, as we think about how to enable a cycle of bringing people back in, and then talk about how we think about end-to-end -end experiences for our customers using our products. And then we'll end with some Q&A. Before we go in, um, I just want to have a note on marketplaces. I work in a marketplace company, TaskRabbit. Um, as was mentioned in the intro, I used to work for Verbo. Um, and, and a lot of us are familiar with all of these marketplace type companies that are listed here. The reason I mention it is that I'm going to be using some examples from marketplace as we go through throughout. I don't think these topics are specific to marketplace. I think there's lots of ways that you can apply these to a B2B business or to an e-commerce business or a lot of businesses, but just wanted to level set that I'm going to be using some examples from these marketplace companies and a market by marketplace, I mean a platform that connects buyers and sellers um, together. So we think about like a supply side, that would be your Uber drivers or your vacation rentals on Verbo um, with the consumer side. Those are the people who are actually going onto the platform and, and booking those services. So I just want to make sure we all kind of um, are on the same page about what a marketplace is. And so those are some of the examples that I'm going to be using. All right, so let's start off thinking about price. And I think it's important to think about price along with um, frequency of use. Um, and, and this depends on what you, you know, your product is, what you're selling, and how often you have your users using it. Because customer retention metrics and tactics may vary depending on how often it's reasonable to expect a customer to return. So for example, in some higher price transactions, um, like if we look at this upper quadrant right here, Airbnb and Verbo, um, you may spend quite a bit of money if you're booking one, maybe two vacations a year for a week or so, but, but it, it's not going to be necessarily something that you're, you're seeing a high frequency of people coming back and interacting and purchasing every day or every week for this. Even for really frequent travelers, it may be 
you know, once or twice a month, but, but not a daily or weekly type of purchase. And so the way we think about um, retention and bringing people back in this type of an environment is going to be really different than like a DoorDash or an Uber, where you actually can expect people to be coming back on a regular basis for a lower price transaction. So when we look at this upper quadrant, low frequency, high price, there tend to be lots of competitors in these types of environments because they're high, high margin um, transactions due to the price. And additionally, there's sometimes incentives for customers to move off platform. So an example of like an Airbnb or a Verbo, um, like why should I go through the platform and book where there are, I incur fees versus going direct to the vacation owner? And so we need to think about what, you know, what benefits we're providing in this, in this world to bring customers back to our platform over and over again versus going direct. Um, how are we providing significant value and offering services that are hard to replicate? Those are some important questions um, in, in these higher price lower frequency examples. But let's think about the a, a different a different one. Um, what about um, in a high frequent in a high frequency you know low price example? Here's another example where we might see um, a variety of competitors. Um, but we need to think about what brings people to us versus you know our competitors. So things like incentives and loyalty programs can keep people coming back for these high frequency transactions. But really, we need to think about um, how we're being efficient with our technology, um, how we're enabling low-cost customer acquisition, how we're helping customers discover what they're looking for, how we remove friction when it comes to um, bringing people through the process, because those are things that are going to enable us to continue to grow our user base and bring people coming back. We need to think about like matching solutions, you know, low touch customer support, and then growth and feedback loops, which we'll talk about a little bit later, that keep customers coming back without us having to pay uh, large amounts to acquire customers. Because the price is lower, it means that our margins are probably lower on a transaction fee versus some higher priced alternatives. And so where you might be able to pay more to acquire customers for a higher price transaction, that, that may not be an option when you're trying to grow in a lower, a lower priced product. Um, so I just bring this up um, because your strategy around how you price and how you think about where you invest in your, in your loops um, is going to depend on where you might fit in this type of a quadrant. And, you know, I think that though I'm showing a lot of marketplace examples here, you can think about this with, um, with a lot of different products, right? If you're a B2B company, are you a company that's, um, you know, where, where customers are coming back and using your product over and over again? How frequent is your renewal cycle? Um, how frequently are purchase decisions being made? Um, you can think about how that might apply in different contexts with, with this type of a framework. So let's dig in on price a little bit, a little bit more. And I've included this graphic um, uh, that I, I borrowed from the Harvard Business School, um, which is the concept of a value stick. And the reason I use it is that I think it's a helpful way to think about um, you know, how we set our prices and how we think about our customers and our suppliers when we're, when we're setting our prices to encourage um, loyalty. And so um, let me just walk you through kind of the, the terms in this, and then we'll look through some examples for how you might, you know, increase your own company's margin, your revenue, as we think about different pricing strategies. So at the top, this WTP stands for willingness to pay. That's our the customer's um, willingness to pay, how much 
um, the highest that they would be willing to pay for your good or service. And then the price is what you're actually charging to the customer. So the difference between what you're charging and what they might be willing to pay, we're defining in this example as customer delight, because in this case, they're getting uh, the good or service for a price that um, is lower than their willingness to pay. Um, and then on the other side, you're seeing kind of the cost. Uh, this is the money that goes into producing your, your good or service. Um, and so the difference between what you're charging customers and what you have to pay for it is, is your company or your firm's margin. And then on the other side, we, we think about a supplier's willingness to sell. So this may be um, the inputs that go into you producing a product. It may be, um, you know, in the case of a marketplace company, it would be the willingness uh, for how low you're willing to, to price your own good or service. So for TaskRabbit, we have people who come to your home to do chores and our taskers set their own hourly rates. And so that, that rate is the, um, it, that we charge as the cost, but they may be willing to go kind of lower. Um, and they may say, I'm not willing to do this job for anything less than $50 an hour. That would be their, their willingness to sell. And the difference between the cost and the willingness to sell is this, the value you're providing to a supplier or, or your su supplier's surplus. And so when we think about how we improve our margin, um, what we're making on a transaction, there's kind of two, two options. One is we can adjust where cost and price fall on, on, on the stick. And the other is we can increase the length of the stick to provide more value to everyone. So let's talk through what, what some of those examples might, might look like. Um, but before, before we get there, um, here's just an illustration of how this might look like um, in a Verbo context. So you have a traveler who's willing to pay $1,000 for their ski condo, but they only have to pay $800 for it. So they have a $200 um, surplus there. The condo owner who owns the vacation rental rents the unit for $720. So there's a firm margin in between. That's Verbo's margin of $80 that they're making on the transaction. Perhaps in this case, the condo owner would have been willing to sell the unit for $600. So they're getting a surplus of $120 on this transaction. So that's just an example with some actual numbers of how, how we're thinking about the value stick. So what are options? Um, you know, for our first option is like we could simply raise prices. And, um, and that's okay, right? We can, we can raise prices to increase margin. And there's some valid reasons why you might do this. Um, you know, it might be because um, you're, you're trying to index off of competitors in the market. Um, it might be because you know, you're trying to improve margins for a particular product line. Um, but when we do think about raising prices, there are some, you know, negatives that come along with that. In, in my um, time doing pricing strategies and tactics at Verbo and uh, TaskRabbit, we always knew when we modeled out price increases that they were always going to cause a reduction in our conversion. So an increase in fees, an increase in price, um, you know, economic theory, it, it, it almost always with price, depending on your price elasticity is going to increase your conversion. And so if we're, if we're decreasing our conversion, what are we also doing? We're decreasing the number of customers who have purchased from us and, and likely having an impact on our repeat rate because we're losing some first time consumers and we're maybe alienating some other customers who think we've raised our rates and encouraging them to potentially check out competitors or consider other options. Um, 
so so when we model them out, like re increasing your price almost always um, in the short term results in an increase in revenue for you. However, in the long term, we need to think about by whether this is something we're willing to do to reduce the customer's delight and therefore decrease their willingness to come back and use our product again. That being said, I definitely did some straight price increases in my time, and there's sometimes really good reasons to do them, but always considering kind of the trade-off that we have um, in potentially losing customers on an ongoing basis. So what would it look like to actually increase the value for all, for all in this instance. So instead of just in this, the previous example, raising price um, and keeping, keeping the stick the same, how do we actually raise the willingness to pay? Uh, it's an interesting question. So how do we help um, our increase that upper bound that a customer would be willing to pay for our product? And therefore we can raise our prices but continue, continue to keep a high amount of customer delight. Um, some of this might, might be done through um, new features and new things that we're enabling for customers that provide more value to them. So there's, there's a variety of different ways that um, you could think about doing that. How are you, um, you know, providing faster speed to customers that they might be willing to pay for? How are you including more options? How are you becoming... Um, of a one-stop shop where they can potentially get rid of other products or services that they use and consolidate to use just your product. Like, what are those things that we can do to, to increase our customer delight and therefore increase their willingness to pay? And in this case, provide value both to you and increase the um, customer delight they get from using your product. Some cases it might even be, you know, adding add-on features that customers can buy as well. Um, you know, additional additional things that they can get, like a, an insurance product or something like that, that increases, you know, their value from using your platform, but also would provide you with more margin. So the a question we always like to ask ourselves when we're thinking about prices: Are we just raising price, or are we actually raising price to take advantage of the fact that we've added a lot of customer delight to our, to our platform. Um, and then we can think about the same thing on the other side, um, on, on the cost side. So this is kind of similar to the idea of we're raising price, we're just lowering costs or lowering what we're paying to our suppliers. And in that case, you're increasing your margin um, again, but you're just pay doing it simply by paying suppliers less. And some companies have control over you know, their supplier costs to be able to do this. Um, so you might think of Uber as an example, like the drivers don't set their own rates, Uber tells them what they're getting paid. And so Uber could reduce what they're paying their suppliers and increase their firm's margin. In other cases, there may be marketplaces like the one I work in with TaskRabbit and Verbo, where we let our suppliers set their own rates and we're determining our pricing with fees um, and, our, and our margin. Uh, so we're marking up on, on what they're setting. And so in those cases, um, there may be, you may have less control over this, this cost metric. Um, but the, the, the thing to think about when we're doing this is, you know, if we're reducing supplier surplus, do suppliers have to use you? Do they have to sell to you? Do they have to supply, um, you know, in a gig economy world, do they have to work for Uber? I don't know if any of you have been trying to get an Uber over the summer, but it's been really hard in some cases when I've been traveling to find one because um, we know that a lot of um, gig economy companies have been suffering from lack of supply. 
And, and, and so are we providing suppliers an incentive to work for us, to sell to us, um, if, if all we're doing is kind of squeezing them to increase our margins? And so, so the opposite of that um, might be thinking through, how are we lowering their willingness to sell by providing more value to them? Um, so a couple options we might consider. One is like, can we just provide them with more business and more volume so they are able to sell their products for less because they're able to achieve economies of scale? That's maybe one option. We provide more value so they're willing to lower their per unit costs. Um, but what, we, what we're thinking of always in our context is similar to the customer context is how are we providing value services that help help them optimize their business, um, help them um, achieve the goals that they're looking for so that we can uh, potentially partner with them to decrease their, um, their willingness to sell. Um, so are there add-on services? Are there, is there data we can provide them so they can optimize their business? What are the things that we can do um, to partner with our suppliers to increase the value um, for us and for them. And so these are just some ideas, some kind of thoughts around price about how we think about optimizing. Um, because ultimately when we're thinking about the value stick, you know, we don't really have a company if we don't have customers and if we don't have suppliers. And so we need to think about um, these solutions and how we how we achieve and release product that value that increases value for all, not just for us, because in the long term, alienating customers by only raising prices or suppliers by squeezing on margins will impact your ability to to retain customers and bring them back to your product over and over. All right, so let's let's move on to the idea of um, growth growth loops and feedback loops. Um, this hits at um, when you think back to the two by two matrix I showed. Um, you know, some of the ideas around how we uh, think about frequency of use and how we think about um, optimizing our product experiences to bring customers back to our product over and over. So feedback loops are used in a variety of contexts. Um, in, in this instance, I'm using it as, you know, mechanisms that we think about having in our product to get positive and negative feedback that can immediately kind of be fed back into our product process. And it forces you to kind of answer when you're thinking about this in terms of growing your product and retaining users, how does one cohort of users that we have, either on the buyer side or the supplier side, help lead to another cohort of users? So how are we thinking about using um, the, the existing people we're bringing in um, to our process to help us grow our business and then also bringing those people back into the business again? Um, traditionally, like, a lot of people think about customer acquisition and growth in terms of a funnel. So how do we bring people in and then keep moving them down to the point of purchase? But in this case, we're kind of flipping that a little bit to think about um, you know, how do we reinvest the output of one cycle of this loop into the next cycle to create compounding effects that are more sustainable than simply just throwing people into the top of the funnel and kind of optimizing conversion of, of each step. And the nice thing about loops um, is that they also kind of combine our product, our channel strategy, and our monetization models all together to work together instead of thinking of each of those in, in a silo by itself. So let me talk through what I mean. Um, um, let's, let's start with the Verbo example for a, for a buyer flow. An example would, might be you have a customer who comes on and they book a vacation rental, um, but they're, they're using this with their friends and family. They're going on a trip. 
And so they have the ability to invite friends to their reservation to get the details about the property. And so now, um, though these people who were invited as friends or family didn't actually make the booking, we now have these people um, within our kind of product cycle. They're getting familiar with the product. They're using the product for certain things. And so it allows Verbo then to acquire that, um, that group of people as a new customer who then are uh, booking customers the next time and kind of repeating that cycle. So how are the ways that we take you know, an existing customer and, um, and get them in our cycle to invite other people to join, to use the product um, in, in, in different ways um, that then helps the company to acquire a customer. You might think about sharing um, content, sharing posts, um, sharing articles, all these different ways that you, we can get our existing customers to help us reach new types of customer cohorts and bring those people into our, um, into our cycle. And the same can work on the supplier side. Um, you know, if we have somebody in our TaskRabbit example of someone who enjoys working for TaskRabbit is making money, you know, they're able to refer a friend. And through that, we acquire new supply and kind of continue the process to grow our network. Um, so I encourage you to think about like, what are the loops existing within your product? What are the ways that we can get um, customers coming back? What are the ways that one buyer flow might lead us into different types of segments and different type of buyer personas that we can that we can pursue? And how do we think about enabling these so that we're not just throwing people in a top of funnel and, and kind of coming down with, you know, a set of purchases at the end, but how do we think about these loops that compound and continue to grow without us investing in what can be sometimes really expensive customer um, acquisition strategies. There are a variety of types of these loops that you can probably think of. Um, you know, a lot of people who have studied these say that the fastest growing products are really powered by one or two very powerful loops, not like 10 to 12 low powered loops. And so one way to think about these is, you know, how, how powerful is the loop? How many customers is it bringing in? How do we put data around this so that we can measure it? And, um, and then how can we make the loops more powerful with the product experiences that we're enabling? All right, so, so let's look at like other types of happiness loops or feedback loops that might help bring customers back into our product over and over again. So here's an example of how we were providing value. And this, this is another way we can think about how we're providing features and things within our product that would increase potentially a customer's willingness to pay for our product as well. Um, and, and especially in um, B2C type contexts where we have customers coming where they have lots of choice and they're trying to find something. What I'm, what I'm trying to highlight here is how we help customers find the best suppliers or the best match for what they're looking, looking at. So if a customer comes in and they're searching for their you know, perfect vacation rental, we, we present to them a whole list of, of options. And in this instance, you know, we're constantly optimizing search rankings and thinking about how we present the best match to an individual customer. So higher quality listings might rank higher, um, because they convert uh, a greater share of buyers. And so, so what we do is, you know, we, we direct customers to the listings that we think are going to give them a great experience. Hopefully the customer has a great experience and they return because they're able to find um, that, that match through, the, through this process. And so what we're doing from a product standpoint is we're thinking about how are we providing value and match 
so that customers can easily and quickly discover what they're looking for and discover high quality inventory um, with our platform and then bring them back um, into the experience because um, they've had that great experience with the brand and so they're kind of coming back. And search is really only, only one, like one example of that. There may be a lot of different examples from a product standpoint of what we can do to, to provide value for customers and keeping them coming back. Sometimes I like to think about like, this is a great, this is a perfect scenario where things go wrong, but where you build a lot of customer loyalty, maybe how you solve customers' problems when something doesn't go right. So in the example um, of an Airbnb or a Verbo, what do they do when they a guest gets a last minute cancellation? So they find their, their great um, property, but um, something goes wrong. And, and if the company can proactively solve that problem for them, though it was a bad experience, they might uh, get a lot of loyalty because when something goes wrong, they feel like the customer has their back. And so what types of product experience can we build in when we think about what we're doing um, when things go wrong is another, another thing to consider. Let's look at another example. Like, um, let's think about reputation and what that means. So how do we help? How do we help customers find um, find quality within a marketplace when we don't control all of the, the the aspects of the service that they're purchasing? So if a customer books a tasker to come to their house, let's say they book them to do a cleaning task for them, uh, the customer has the opportunity to leave a review. Um, and that that review, what do we do with that review? It well, it impacts a couple of things. One, it displays on the site so that we can. Um, show that to other customers as they're making decisions. But two, it impacts um, you know, the reputation of the particular person that they booked or the product that they booked. And so you know, positive reviews, of course, will improve the reputation and negative reviews will, will negatively affect that. And so then, then what do we do with that information? Um, you know, we put it back into the product so that we're thinking about um, how we uh, convert more customers um, with better experiences. And, um, and then we take this information and we use it to improve our matching algorithms, our search algorithms, and reward those who are providing a really good experience. This allows us to help provide a good experience for the customer while not having full supply, full control over uh, the product or this this person that they're booking, so it gives in, puts incentives into the process because if somebody's not providing a good service, if they're not providing a good product, um, those negative reviews will push them down, so they're not actually getting getting bookings. So it's in the best interest of um, the supplier to provide that good experience for a customer, and it enables kind of a healthy cycle where we're taking the feedback. And we're continuing to put this feedback back into the product to provide better experiences for customers to kind of continue bringing them back and fueling these happiness loops within our product. Um, so how are we providing that good experience that drives them back? Um, I think, how are we measuring it? What data do we have that helps empower this? And then how are we taking that data and feeding it back into enhancing the product experience in, um, automated ways, um, data science algorithms and, and, and the like, um, so that we're enabling these loops to kind of continue to happen, to increase the benefits of our product, to increase the network, to increase what we're providing um, to the customer. This helps us to scale without degrading the, the experience by pushing buyers to good suppliers.
And so just a few questions um, to think about, you know, for your products. Um, how are ways, you know, when you think about happiness loops, what can we do to decrease friction in our products? Um, how hard is it for customers to find what they're looking for? Um, the thinking through that question might come up with examples or ideas for how we can improve customer experiences and bring them back into our products. You know, how many searches when they're looking for something turn up empty? Um, do we have the right supply to meet our demand? Um, do we have the right product features that they're looking for um, so, that, so that they can accomplish the task that they're trying to get done so that we're solving all of their problems? Um, sometimes we can discover ways to improve this by asking the question, how long does it take to complete the task? And, and I think this is something that's relevant to all types of products. Um, you know, if we're improving our customers' ability to complete things, tasks efficiently and solving their problems, um, we're increasing their happiness and bringing them back into the product over and over again. How does the customer feel about the value that they received? That, that goes back to that question of, are we increasing our customers' willingness to pay and adding value by um, the product experiences that we're building? Um, where are some areas where they didn't feel like they received good value? Where are the areas that they struggled? And then on the supplier side, I think we can also ask some of these questions um, for the supply. Like how, how hard is it to onboard supply? How hard is it for um, our customers on the supply side um, as well? Where are their friction points? Where are their challenges? Um, are they getting value from, from what we're providing as well? And so there might be a lot of ways that this, that this leads you, um, but ultimately I, I just encourage everyone to kind of think about how we're thinking about these virtuous cycles that help us improve our products and keep bringing people back in um, to our products and services. And then finally, I just wanted to touch on kind of one more aspect, which is, um, you know, we're, as product managers, we're very likely to think about um, the online experiences that we're building, right? That's what we're, we're, we're most of us probably building software products. Um, maybe some of us are building physical products as well, but um, we don't, we don't have control over the end-to-end -end experience always of what a customer is going through in their journey. And so when we think about optimizing for customer loyalty and happiness and bringing them back in, we need to kind of map out and think about what pieces are they doing within our software or our, our technology? And then what are the things that are happening offline that can have a very real and frustrating and negative effect or on the opposite, a very positive effect that impact their willingness to come back? So I just put an example of, of um, searching for a vacation rental, because I think this is probably something a lot of us can relate to. And so this, the steps in the process are, you know, you're searching for a rental, find the right listing, you book your listing. And um, maybe you communicate with the owner back and forth, either before booking or after booking. But this, this top, these top four um, phases of booking can happen up to 60, 90 days before the customer is actually traveling to uh, the place that they're, they're going to be staying, these, these things that happen within your product. So we talked about some examples of how we might optimize for search and helping to find the right listing and the booking process and the pricing kind of comes into play here. Uh, but then there's a long, potentially a long time period that happens. And, and what's next is that the customer arrives at the property. 
And at this point, the technology isn't, isn't at, at play as much. It may be in helping you kind of get into the property, but is the property clean? You know, is the host helpful? Um, you know, what are, what are the different aspects of the experience that they're having in person away from our product? Because that has a very big impact and effect on whether the person is going to give a positive review and then kind of come back into this process and, and do it again. Um, and the challenge here is that we don't con control all of these pieces. Um, if you're selling like an e-commerce product or a physical product, we may not control the delivery. We may not control how it arrives um, from, a, from a carrier uh, as it's shipped to your consumer. We may not have control over all of the pieces of a customer using like a, an integration where there's other external APIs integrated into our products. And so I think it's important when we think about how we're you know, thinking about the end-to-end -end experience to think about what are the pieces we can control and, and that's where we can focus on our pricing and our happiness loops. And then for the pieces that we don't control, how can we incentivize the right actions from customers and suppliers to help um, ensure that we can't ensure 100%, like help encourage better outcomes in those pieces that we aren't um, in control over? And what can we use in our product to incentivize those actions? Um, in the case that I had shared previously, where you, you know, a customer reviews a stay, if those reviews are therefore, you know, coming back into our product and impacting an owner's ability to get future listings, that's a really strong incentive for them to provide a great experience because if they don't, they're probably not going to get a lot of extra, um, extra uh, reviews. Um, there's also things you can do where you can kind of have an elite program or, 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 um, give incentives with monetary or otherwise to customers who are kind of the top of the top. So giving them something to shoot for that encourages them towards the outcomes that we're trying to, to give to our customers. And then the last piece, which I kind of mentioned previously, but how do you help customers when something goes wrong? So knowing that you don't have full control over every aspect, how do you provide the customer support, the automated support, um, to, to help customers when something goes wrong, to encourage them to kind of come back into the experience. Uh, I think these are things that sometimes can be forgotten because they may not always be enabled with technology, but we try to think in our business about how we, um, how we digitize or get data on some of these offline behaviors that we can then feed back into the product in order to guarantee better outcomes for our customers and bring them coming back. Uh, because you can imagine if you have one of these really terrible experiences and the company isn't proactive in helping you resolve it, um, that's probably a lost, a lost customer and a lost, um, lot, you're, you're losing loyalty if we're not thinking about their entire journey and how we provide a great outcome for them. Let me just recap um, with what we've talked about uh, today and then we'll open it up for some Q&A. So some key takeaways. Um, your company's pricing strategy and frequency of use affects how you think about using product features to improve retention. It affects the, um, the data and what you're shooting for there. And um, in some cases um, can channel you towards different ways of thinking about bringing customers back depending on how, frequency, how frequent you can expect them to use the product, how, how often you can expect them to pay for it. Price can be a powerful lever to improve revenue. Uh, but but impacting uh, price can have long-term effects on customer retention if we're not careful about how we use that lever. Um, and then feedback loops 
help drive customer retention by providing product experience that can continue to bring customers back into our products again and again. Um, thinking about the customer's end-to-end -end journey and how we provide great experience for them um, helps, it, helps us provide that additional value to them and then gives us more leverage from a pricing perspective as to how we extract value from, from the marketplace for our companies as we think about growing revenue. Um, so those are some takeaways. And um, with that, I'll go ahead and turn it over to, to Q&A. We do have some questions coming in the chat, um, but I think I will start with this one. Lindsay, uh, is there anything to say about the quality of customers that are brought in by referrals? Or in the case that you talked about, these were you know, uh, other guests that were staying that hadn't made the reservation, but they were also staying, so you get their contact info as well. Is there any discussion to be had about the quality of that type of referral and contact? And do you segregate those at all, or you just can throw them all into the same pot and send the same emails to everybody? Yeah, I think that's a great that's a great question. I think um, when someone comes through a referral or comes through a different channel where they haven't purchased from you, I think we do need to think about different messaging and different ways that we. Um, reach out to them, right? And so I don't think they are treated quite the same as somebody who may come through um, one of our other channels, but in some ways they're, like we would think of them as like warm leads, right? They know who the brand is. They've used the product a little bit. They've had some experience with it. And so how can we say like, hey, we know you went on this trip with your, you know, this group. Um, have you considered us for um, for your next vacation? Have you considered us for this upcoming holiday that's coming up or a spring break trip or, or what have you? So we assume a higher level of knowledge um, with that and, and consider them like a, a bit of a warmer lead than somebody who may come in through like a, um, a traditional funnel that the marketing team is, is kind of bringing in. And so I do think like there's ways to kind of um, treat them and talk to them in a way of, of like, we, we know you, we know you have some experience with us, or you came through a friend um, referral. And in some cases, maybe even providing, like we would think about providing um, incentives or promotions for those types of, of users. If um, we aren't paying to acquire them through, you know, a paid channel, we, we have more uh, ability to kind of offer some incentives to bring those people in. And so there's other tactics we can use with those types of um, customers. So I do think it it kind of depends a little bit on the experience, but it does warrant thinking about who those cohorts are and even thinking about like where they came in. So you may have multiple ways for people to kind of be referred into the product. And depending on how they came in, we may treat those as different cohorts and, and, and think about um, talking to them in different ways. Here's another one. This one came in from Harry, who asks, uh, you know, presumably there are multiple potential feedback loops possible for any given product. How do you identify and prioritize and test the feedback loop that will work best for your firm or your product? And then uh, Harry also asked, can you provide uh, an example of virtuous loops that have worked well for B2B business growing? So two parts to that question there. Yeah, I think it's a it's an interesting question because we do, you know, the, you may have many loops and some are going to be more powerful than others. So um, in terms of prioritization, like, you know, one thing that we think about is like what loops already exist. Um, like, do we have any existing existing loops and can we put some data around how those are performing um, instead of creating, 
we can certainly create new loops with new product features, but um, you know, for us, the prioritization of which ones we think are going to be the most impactful, one comes from starting with our any internal data we may have that kind of indicates which ones are successful today and, and which ones are bringing in the right types of customers. And then two, through customer discovery. And so under, you know, talking to our customers and understanding um, the, the things that are working for them and the things that aren't. So it's a little bit of a combination of those two, but ultimately it's a, it's a test and learn process because we can't always figure it out um, th you know, through our discovery. We try to minimize the risk with our discovery through our data and through talking to customers and then think about how quickly we can iterate and test on these ideas to see how, how effective they are and then, and then continue to iterate on the ones that are working well to develop their power. And so that it's it that's kind of our process. Um, a B two B loop. Uh, you'll have to let me think for a second because it's been a hot minute since I've worked in the B two B world. Um, though, though I have in the past, um, you know, it, it a little bit depends on the industry. But I worked in a company, um, a startup company that was in the mortgage space, and we were essentially. Uh, building a software for mortgage brokers to use um, with their borrowers as they were going throughout the loan process. And so it was a little bit of a B2B to C process. We mm -hmm. were um, selling to the, to the loan providers. And so in that instance, um, um, in some cases, as we were growing the business from, from its beginning, we weren't selling to like like the bank or the overall company that then had a lot of loan officers, we were selling our product to like an individual loan officer and they were using the product and they were like, this is really amazing. And, and we were, we were trying to think through how we helped those people who were really getting a lot of benefit to spread it within their companies to other, other users. And, and in some cases, the company had made a decision and said, we bought this technology for you to use. And we were seeing really low adoption across um, across the different users. And so the question we were considering in that case wasn't as much of a purchase decision, but how do we increase adoption with all of the agents within a company? Um, because if they're not adopting it, they're probably not going to be renewing and, and, and be ongoing customers um, that are coming back and paying our SaaS uh, sure. fees. And so in those cases, it was a little bit more about retention um, and, and getting the retention was more about activation. And so we were thinking, how do we use the active users that we do have to bring their colleagues and, and others into the platform? And so those were some of the questions that we were thinking through in that B2B context, which is a little different. Well, and that addresses, of course, the, the title of the project today. These loops don't necessarily have to be just about gaining new customers. They can also be about retention and there, there are other goals. And in fact, that reminds me of a question uh, submitted by Jeannie. Can you provide examples of high converting loops? What are the features that are intrinsic to powerful loops? Uh, it's not just about bringing in customers. What are some of the other uh, telltale signs of a loop that is working well? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, loop, loops that are working well, and these metrics will depend on the type of business you have, but yeah. um, like, what is the what is the repeat rate of, of customers either buying or coming back to use your app? Um, are they da like daily active users, weekly active users? Those types of things will indicate to you kind of whether your, your app has the power of people coming back um, to use it over and over again. 
Um, high converting loops, let's see, what else is a, is a good indication? I think, um, you know, when you think about um, the tactics that you have for users to invite others, you know, how, how many invitations are going out, how many shares of content are going out, and how effective are those at bringing customers into to turning them into kind of registered users or buying users. So we can think about um, high, high effective loops have multiple points for customers to kind of be brought in and invited in and how effective are those at, at converting user or invitees to users. And yeah, I mean, I think there's also just kind of basic usage stats that we can look at to see, you know, what are people doing within the platform? Um, you know, how are they using it? And then, um, and those things can kind of tell us whether we're bringing in active and engaged users versus just like somebody who clicks on a link to check it out. Like, are they actually becoming kind of power users of a B2B app or um, frequent users of B2C type apps? And, and those are some characteristics of, um, you know, high converting loops. The uh, follow up from Jenny in the chat says, are you saying that the loops are based on KPIs one defines when building the service or product? Yeah, a lot of times for sure. Like we think we yeah. think about how we're defining the the metrics, um, because you know I didn't put any metrics around these loops, but those are super in our in the examples. But they're super important for how we think about are they effective and are they doing what we want them to be doing. So I think each of those steps, as you think about loops, can have their own metrics for us to understand like how effective are we at getting people through each step of the process. But ultimately, what are we trying to do with them? Is it increased revenue? Is it increased referrals? Is it increased um, usage of the product? Th those will kind of guide how we set up those loops within our products. Well, let me let me just um, randomly choose one more here because they're all good. I think I'm going to go with this one that asks, "What are some of your favorite ways to do customer research? How do you find out their friction points?" This is a great question because I think it's super critical and really important because we we can't kind of come up with these ideas in a silo um, because we we're limited in understanding and our assumptions about what customers actually want. And so right. customer discovery is such an important process um, and we do it in a couple of ways like I mean my most favorite thing is like finding ways to talk to customers, finding ways to observe what they're doing in, their pro in the product today. And as we have new designs or new concepts to test with them, actually putting those in front of customers and having them walk through you know, what they're thinking about it. So I think early on that can really shape how we're thinking about what we're doing and how we're providing value for customers. I sit, I have a team of seven and I sit in on these sessions every week as often as I can, because I, it's helpful for me to hear, hear that of how they're using it and what they want it to do. But then I think there's, there's also ways that we can scale that, right? And so we, there's ways we can get, um, you know, feedback on, on designs or on pain points through surveys, which can be really helpful. We can ask for input um, from our customers. And so that, that's another way. And then another, um, Another thing that I find super useful is talking to our customer success agents and understanding like what are the pain points and issues that are being um, brought up? What are the tickets that are coming in? And how can we you know, utilize people within our companies who are talking to customers every day and, and glean information from them as well? So those are probably like my top, top three ways. Like I think you need to hit it in a lot of different ways. Um, 
and, and on, and an ongoing basis, because if you're not talking to your customers, you're probably not, not solving the pain points in the way, in all the ways that you could be. Um, and it's super critical to, to involve them in the process. All right. And Lindsay, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us today, making us all smarter about feedback loops. I am intrigued and I'm going to start looking for them and trying to manufacture them wherever we can with our business. Thanks for having me. Appreciate the opportunity to kind of talk about these things. And um... thank you so much. And gang, uh, see you again next time, November 18th, 1 p.m. Eastern time with Ted Best. And in the meantime, have a fantastic week. Uh, stay safe and healthy out there. We will see you next time. Bye.